Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Wow, what a great reminder that a Lamb of God who fixes all of our brokenness, paid for it all, puts us in right step with him. Listen, this is going to be, I'm just going to give it to you out straight out front right now. This is going to be a hardship message. You're going from talking about celebrating the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to talking about toxic relationships. Doesn't that sound like a blast? Uh, No, seriously, uh, you'll also feel whiplash just like you're feeling whiplash now. We're going to feel whiplash at the end and hopefully it will all come together then. But yes, I think in our society today, I've been walking this planet for over half a century. Um, and I see more fragility in our relationships than ever. I see marriages more fragile in the past two years alone than the past 31 years that I've been in ministry. And it is, it's people across the spectrum. It's pastors, it's, pe- it's people not in the church, it's people who've been married for 25, 30 years to people who have been married for five years or for five months. And so it's, it's just like there's, it's, the marriages are very fragile today. I look in our politics in our political world, where we might have always had disagreements and party lines and things like that, right now there is such a polarization. We no longer just disagree with your party and my party. It's now we absolutely are hurling things at each other. We're, we're causing all kinds of disruptions. We, we can't even be in the same room with each other at times. It's incredible that toxic world in which we live. No longer are, are, are Kids fighting on the playground over something they're now fighting in the hallways with guns and bullets. I mean, just think about that. This is the world in which we live. So you would think that over time we would progress out of this toxic ways, but it seems like we're digressing in this world in which we live. 2002, a couple of psychologists were noticing trends across America that there were three primary components that made up these trends, but they were all coming and marrying themselves together. Any one of these would be bad, toxic, need to deal with it kind of things. But when you take these three and you marry them together, it's what they have coined the dark triad. And this dark triad is, is something that has to be addressed and you have to be aware of it, okay? But th- there's, there's three distinct personality behaviors that go into this. First is narcissism. You might have heard people call people narcissistic. It's, a, it's the common phrase that you want to label someone if that you feel like they are selfish. But you know what? I have never heard a person say, I'm narcissistic. It's always the other person that's a narcissist. And so the idea that we can be selfish and make ourselves the center of the universe, but I sometimes wonder, parents, I'm, I'm, I'm a parent too, if we have not created some of that in our own culture. As we have made our children the center of the universe, uh, 
as we have been bulldozer parents or helicopter parents and swooping in and trying to fix all their little wounds before they can even experience the pain of them and be able to navigate the pain of them, we kind of come in and we want to fix it. And I wonder sometimes if we had brought some of that on. Lori and I are right now praying through a series of messages in the new year about parenting. We've ne- I've never done a parenting series. We're looking at parenting examples through the scripture and finding them. We want to raise up giants, okay? But it's not just giant egos, giant character. And so be praying for us in that because I think, again, we've raised up narcissism in our own culture. Machiavellianism is another one. It's not exactly the word that you throw out on the, all, all the time. It's probably, it probably dates back to the 1600s, and a political figure was about, about doing whatever it took to get his, his plan. It, it didn't matter what it was. The means justified, or the end justified the, the means. It didn't matter how, what it takes to get there. You see this still in politics today, but you see this in businesses, backstabbing. I'll climb over top of you to get myself up to a higher rung. You see this Machiavellianism that can manifest itself in, in so many ways. Psychopath is another one. You bring these three together, a psychopath is a person who has no empathy, has no sense of emotional connection, is maybe even emotionally unaware, and they just cause pain, and they just go on with it, and they don't feel that pain. When you bring these three together, you create a dark triad. How do you deal with that? You've got to deal with it. In fact, you've got one or two options. You can run, or you can redeem. Those are basically the two options that you have. And the problem with running, running is easier, okay? Redeeming is a lot of hard work, especially whenever one of these or all three of these are in yourself. It's hard to run from yourself. It's incredible how people will run from one job to another, one relationship to another, and they only find out when they get to the next place that the same personalities come with them. The same problems follow them. How do you deal with this? And I think, Mike, where are you going with this? Take your Bibles and open the book of Philippians. We're not going to be in the Gospels today. We've been looking at the life of Jesus, trading up from my way to the Jesus way. And I think this will all come together as we go into this. When you look at what, where, where, the way Paul kind of addresses this, in the, in the, in, in, in when, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, he not only saves you on that day, he is constantly saving you throughout your life to one day ultimately save you in the end. But right now what he's dealing with is he's dealing with what God is trying to work in us. And the problem is, is that we in culture, in today, whenever any of these, these personalities break down or whenever we live with unconfessed sin in our life, that it's incredible that Paul, every church that he writes, he's writing them nine times out of ten over problems, over disunity, over conflict that they couldn't seem to resolve. In Philippians, one of the books that has more to do with joy than any other book was written because there was disunity. Read chapter 4. He literally calls two women out because of the disunity that was causing. It was rippling throughout the church. Anxiety was in the church. And all of a sudden, they were losing their joy. And what Paul does is he brings them back to, and he calls them back to, the relationship of Jesus. And Paul becomes a relationship coach for us today. 
Philippi is located just nine miles north of, um, north of the Aegean Sea. It was a port, nearly a port city. It was a beautiful place. You can go there today. It's an incredible place to go, but it was also the Roman city. Very large metropolitan area, covers a lot of real estate in that day and age. And it was not only important for the Roman Empire, it was important for the gospel. There's a lot of God work that he does in Philippi. And all the time, what God, what, what God starts, what God is working, Satan is always countering. And one of the ways he counters is to create disharmony, disunity. He creates anger, unresolved anger, things that we can't get past. But I want us to look at chapter 2 of Philippians, one of my favorite books because it is so joyful. But notice what he calls us to. How do we get to there? Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now that just right there just oozes care and compassion for the other person. Love, sympathy, affection, all of that. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Notice he says mind twice there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look out for his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Notice everything he says to do, everything, if you're going to have a good, healthy relationship, whether it's a marital relationship, it's a relationship with your children, a relationship on the job, a relationship at your church, relationship, 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 if we would learn to look beyond ourselves, don't go into it with selfish ambition, Look at, come into the relationship with humility. Oh my goodness, what it would change in that relationship. But notice, how do you get there? Two different times, actually three different times in two verses, he implores you to examine your mind, your thoughts. He does it in verse two, and then you go to verse five. Have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. What is this mind? This mind of Jesus. You want to really have a good relationship in your marriage? You have a good relationship wherever it is in your life? Have the mind of Christ. Take on the mind of Christ. Now, whenever he mentions mind multiple times, I pointed them out to you. He not only mentions mind, but it's also translated in chapter 1, verse 7 as feel. Feel this way. So what is it when you take mind plus feelings and you marry them together? What do you get? You get attitude. Other translations put that same verse this way. Chapter seven, no, chapter uh, 2, verse 5, it says it like this. Make your own attitude. That of Christ Jesus. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So Paul, in his relationship coaching that he's, that he's leading us through, he's calling God's people to live in well with one another. Where do you live well with one another as God's people? Hopefully, the church. 
But again, I point out to you that even in the church, Paul is dealing with disunity. You read through all Paul's letters, there's dealing with conflict and disharmony. We, as the church, should be the place of all places that should have the mind of Christ. You, as a Christian marriage, if your marriage is truly a united in Christ marriage, should, of all places, have the mind of Christ, have the attitude of Christ. What does that look like? What does that smell like? What does that taste like? Well, in verse 1 to verse 4, he tells us exactly what it's going to take. So if you're like looking for your to-do list for the next years of your life, just take a pen out, start making a list of everything he says from verse 1 to verse 4. But what he does so beautifully, because Paul's our relational, relational coach here, our counselor, what he does is he points to Jesus. He says, this is the Jesus way. And so when I talk about trading up today, I'm talking about trading up to the Jesus way. And if you look at this, when we get into this, you're going to see that he's going to talk about sacrificial. You're going to see Jesus, how he lived a sacrificial life, how he lived a life of serving, how he lived a life of selflessness. You take those three and you put them into a Venn diagram and you have right there at the very center, you have the relationship EQ of Jesus. And if I could have more sacrificial living in my life with Lori, sacrificial with the church, sacrificial in all my relationships, if I could be more serving and less self-serving, if I could be more selfless and less about me, I'm literally pushing out any chance of narcissism or any of those other darknesses that can easily slip in. So when I talk about trading up, and every week we've had a trading up statement, it's moving from a me-first attitude in any relationship to a Christ-like attitude in the relationship. A Christ-like attitude. What does that look like? Well, Jesus wants us together. He wants us unified. Paul is calling the church at Philippi together. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus, literally, he's praying this Maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane, we can't pinpoint exactly where he prays this prayer. But in John 17, notice the last words. He says that they may be one, even as we, he's speaking to God the Father, are one. May be one, even as we are one. There's a unity. There's a community. There's a bonding. There's a togetherness. There is... Just like God, just like the Father, just like the Son, just like the Spirit are three in one. So he's calling us to that same gospel-centric relationship. So what's it going to take? When you look at Jesus, and we're going to look deeper into this now, into the example that Jesus brings, you're going to see three attitude adjustments that we need to have. If we're going to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, we're going to be like Christ in our attitudes and in our relationships, what's it going to require? Three attitude adjustments. Number one is sacrificial. Sacrificial. Now, I, have, I, know, I know this. Sacrifice is not the most warm, fuzzy word. It doesn't just like get you excited about life. It seems like if I sacrifice, I'm going to get kind of mopey and it's kind of a self-martyrdom position. That is not at all the attitude of Jesus when it comes to sacrifice. In fact, Jesus said, 
He said, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for a friend. That is what real ultimate love is. Is whenever I'm willing to lay off my desires, my selfish ambitions that we just read about, I'm willing to put those to the side and I'm willing to lay it all down in the name of and for the name of Jesus. The most common statement that Jesus makes six different times in the Gospels. Philip Yancey paraphrases it like this. You don't find your life by getting more and more. You find your life by giving it away. In the process of giving away, you actually find your life. It's a paradigm shift. Everything about the, the, the Jesus attitude and relationships of life is a complete 180 from what this world is going to tell you you need to have. world is going to allow narcissism. In fact, we're going to feed it. The world is going to allow psychopaths to exist. No empathy, no emotion, because you shouldn't be involved in somebody else's affairs. You need to just be about the facts. Our world feeds that. What, 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 what Jesus does is he pulls away from that. And he leads with sacrifice. Sacrifice is hard to put your arms around, especially if we don't have a clear definition for it. But here's, here's the definition that I use. It's whenever I'm willing to give up something I like for someone that I love even more. So what is it that Lori needs? What is it that you need? And I'm willing to give up time, talents, treasures, whatever. I'm willing to give up that to put it for your good. Because I'm not living for my good. I'm living for your good. That's a sacrificial life. And it is a game changer. But when you look at Jesus and his example, look at verse 6 and verse 7. Again, we already read verse 5. Have this mind in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God. He was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, held on tightly to. Now, I want us to understand this. Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. I know you probably know that, but I just want to reiterate, reiterate that. Jesus was in the very beginning of time. He was before the beginning of time. Jesus has always been. He's a part of the Trinity, three in one. They always existed. Now, state the obvious, but let me come back to this. In this cosmic order of God, man fell. God calls on his son to go and redeem mankind. He was in the form, the very form of God, but he did not regard that equality with God a thing to be held onto. He didn't just grasp onto it, but what did he do? He emptied himself. Jesus went, from being equal in every way with God the Father, equal in, 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 in being worshipped in the heavens, equal in being the king on the throne, equal in every way to emptying himself. What a span of a difference. And the word emptying is actually used about four different times in, in, in the New Testament. It's always used metaphorically, and it is the idea of not emptying a container, but rather putting yourself down. Not down in a demeaning way, but willingly humbling yourself down. Jesus 
stepped out of eternity, out of paradise, out of kingship, out of all of heaven, and he stepped down. He never stopped being God, but he stepped down to being man. David Livingston said God had one son, and he made him a missionary. I think there's probably, if we're thinking of modern day examples, I think the example of a missionary in the life that they live is probably the closest thing I can think about this, where a missionary would leave his culture to go to another culture. Missionary would leave their, 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 their food, their familiarities, everything that they know, their comforts, their family, and they would load up and they would go to another part of the world and live and invest their life. Maybe to a much darker world, maybe to a world that didn't have all of the infrastructure that we have, but they would answer that call of God. This is that call of Jesus calling to be a missionary. An example is a missionary to the New Hebrides, A.W. Mine. Whenever he felt the call of God in the London Missionary Society, sent him from London to the New Hebrides to be a missionary, and everybody that had gone as a missionary to the New Hebrides had been martyred for the faith, had been decapitated. And now he feels called by God to go and serve in this land? Yes. What does he do? He takes all of his contents and he loads it up in a coffin. That was his suitcase because his commitment was to go to this land and live or die for the gospel. In the name of Jesus, he was going to live out his life there and they could bury him him in his own coffin if it didn't work out. Every missionary up to this point had been killed. He goes and he lives for 35 years. He's faithful to the gospel. He loves, he loves, he serves, he, he gives of himself. And when he was buried, they buried him in the middle of the village. Think about burying somebody in the Bentonville Square. And at, that, at his epitaph, they put this, these words. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. That's a person who lived the incarnational life. The incarnational demeanor that he had in himself that I'm willing to sacrifice it all because I love them more than I love my things. Sacrificial living. Number two, it's serving. Incarnational demeanor is what we're called to. Look at Jesus. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That's literally why he came. He could have come. Hey, he was equal to God. He was equal in every way, but he didn't hold on to the things of God. He was willing to give it all up, give up the position, give up the praise, give up the power, give up everything to come down to this earth. Now you would have thought that he would have taken a form that would be still kingly. No, he wasn't that way at all. In fact, when you look at the text a little closer, verse six, it says that he was in the form of God but he took the form of a servant. And then it says he was in human form. You got form, form, form. The first two forms are the Greek word morphe, which is where we get the word metamorphosis from. The, the third Greek uh, uh, word there in the English that's been translated form is not. It's where we get the word schema from. 
And the word schema, the word we use schema today, we would think about a schema or a plan or a schematics is how you get from point A to point B. It's what an engineer or a builder might use as a blueprint to get from point A to point B. So what, what we see is we see Jesus is our schema. He is our form in which we need to model our life after. And what form did he take? The form of a servant. He lived his life as, wouldn't it have been enough to say, okay, Jesus, you're going to go down to earth and you're going to be a king. You're going to be as powerful as Rome. You're going to overthrow Rome. No. You're going to be born and you're going to be born in Bethlehem. You're going to be born in a cold limestone cave. I've been to where they think that he was born. A cold, mildew-ridden limestone cave. You're going to be born in a stable where animals defecate. That's where you're going to be born. Oh, and you're going to grow up in Nazareth. Oh, by the way, there was a phrase around in the New Testament period that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So you're going to be born in a cave with mildew and feces. You're going to grow up in a city that nobody wants to live in, the other side of the tracks. You're going to live your life. And oh, by the way, we don't have any mention of your dad, Joseph, after the time that they find you in the temple. Many scholars believe, we don't have fact on this. We don't have verse on this. Many scholars believe that Joseph probably died early. So therefore, he, in his teen years, he's going to grow up with a widow mother and a, who's, who's a single parent home. So Jesus is not born in a palace. He's not born in some stately state. He is born as a servant. He is born at the low end of the spectrum. He feels pain. He faces fatigue. There are times in scripture where it talks about him being hungry. He felt everything that we feel to this day. He didn't have morphine when he went to the cross. He felt suffering. The incarnational demeanor that we're supposed to have is that we are not only sacrificial, but we live in a servant's mindset. What if I took a servant's mindset into every one of my relationships? Not a self-serving, a servant's mindset. What if I took a serving mindset into my relationship with Lori? Where no longer is it, hey, she's not meeting my needs. I'm living all my focused attention on meeting her needs. I'm now serving her. Wow, what would that change about my, our relationship? Oh, by the way, it's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. See, if we want to get out of the dark triad of personality disorders of our day, live a sacrificial relationship with other people. Live a serving relationship with other people. But number three, live a selfless relationship with others. It's exactly what Jesus does. Remind you of the context. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. By the way, I know we look in Christian culture and we say humility is a virtue to be achieved or to have. Not in the first century. The Greeks did not consider humility a virtue. It was something you would steer away from. You would want to exalt yourself. You would want to promote yourself. You would want to be focused on yourself. 
Humility becomes a Christian virtue because that's the virtue that Jesus lived. Verse four, let each of you look out, look not only on your own interest, but for the interest of others. See, a selfless marriage, a selfless attitude on the job, a selfless attitude in the church, a selfless attitude in all of our relationships will be an attitude that I'm going to look out for your interest before my interest. I'm going to serve you because I want to serve you. I'm going to live sacrificially for you because that is the Jesus way. Jesus humbled himself. But he didn't just humble himself. He humbled himself to the point of death. Not just death, death on a cross. Let that sit there for a moment. Because I really believe when Paul's writing this, I think there's emotion in this. Because a Roman citizen would not die on a cross. It was such a heinous form of death, such a inhumane form of death that if you were a Roman citizen under the Roman rule because Rome created the crucifixion, they would not even force their most evil people to be punished on a cross. But yet Jesus goes to the cross. He didn't want to go to the cross. He said this in the, in the Gospel of Luke. He prayed this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When you look at this passage, you see this incredible downward trajectory of Jesus. He's in the form of God. He is right there in the heavens with God. But he emptied himself. He didn't just empty himself, he became a servant. He didn't just become a servant, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient to the point of death, but not only death, death on a cross. You see this downward trajectory in the life of Jesus. Down, down, down. He does that for you and me. That's the model of our relationships. But he doesn't stay there. The next words of Paul, therefore. There's a change. Therefore, whiplash. Remember in the beginning of the message? Here's whiplash again. Therefore, what happens next? Therefore, God has highly exalted. Therefore, every knee's gonna bow to him. Therefore, every tongue will confess both in the heavens and the earth and under the earth. And every knee will bow and say that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I get an amen in the house? Many, many people believe that this is the first hymn of Jesus in the New Testament that we have recorded. So let's stand and let's declare it. Read it with me out loud, uninterrupted. Here we go. Therefore, read it with me. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
in the heaven and the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Scent.